Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 719 of the podcast and it is Saturday the 14th of October 2023 as I record this. In today's show, Linda Lappin talks about writing Soul of Place. What is Soul of Place or Genius Loci and how can you write it in a more immersive way in your books, whatever the genre? How can you discover it closer to home, as well as write real settings more authentically and invent them if you're writing fiction? So that's coming up in the interview section. So in publishing and book marketing things, BookBub uh, has a mega article on 140 book marketing ideas to help authors increase sales. Now, I love this because so often I hear authors say, oh, I can't afford to do paid ads, so I can't sell any books. And this is ridiculous because there are so many ways to market your books. And in fact, in my own book, How to Market a Book, there is only one chapter on paid ads. And there are so many things you can do if you have a bit more time than money. And this BookBub article has a lot of ideas. Uh, It includes some things you would have heard before, but there are also links to other resources, for example, around identifying your target audience, developing author branding, which are both harder than they sound. (laughs) And of course, you can pivot over time, as we all do. Also, building your email list and optimizing your books. One of the things they pointed out, which I thought I would mention, is making sure series are linked together. And I've definitely found this sometimes if you spell either your series name wrong, even if you include an extra space or your name slightly wrong, if you have initials like I do, JF Pen, and you get the dots wrong or the spacing wrong, that will mean books aren't linked together on the various retailers. So make sure you spell those correctly. Also, um, things like doing a pre-order campaign, price promotions and discounting, self-publishing a sequel or a shorter related non-fiction book. This is a good tip and I I feel like many non-fiction authors in particular forget this. So fiction authors know, oh, well, I'll just publish a short story or a prequel novella or something and put that for free and, you know, use that to market a a series. But for non-fiction, you can also do a shorter non-fiction book. So uh, I've done these before, but, you know, as long as your book is around, let's say, 25 thousand words, you can still do a print edition. Uh, It will be short, but that might be one way to uh, help market your other work. Live streaming events, that can be video Q&A or an actual in-person event, as well as branding your social media headers with more specific content. Uh, I'm terrible at that. I I know I need to do this, but I'm just not that enthusiastic about social media in general. Then there is pitching your book as a holiday gift. And as we're recording this uh, mid-October, this is you know, getting to the last moment when you can deal with this kind of thing for the year. And in fact, if you want to do gift guides, you need to do months in advance, really. But this is something that every year I think about and every year I just kind of fail miserably on. But if you want to do promotions for Christmas, uh, good idea. And uh, people can then give away your books or you can give away your books. And I have actually had some requests for bulk orders of writing The Shadow. And yes, you can definitely buy uh, them in bulk and indeed any of my books. Just email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com and we can sort that out. Go and check out that BookBub article on book marketing, especially if you feel like, oh, do you know, I just can't afford ads or ads aren't working for me. And I guess, you know, ads are do work for some books, some people in some situations sometimes, and they can be very, very powerful, but they are not the be all and end all. So please do consider other forms of marketing. So if you've been around the indie sphere for a while, (laughs) you will know Joe Conrath, who is kind of one of the original earliest authors, traditional publishing authors who got his rights back and went full steam ahead into self-publishing, did very well, still does very well, has hundreds of books. And back in the early days, he was a regular voice on his blog. And when I say voice, he really has a a good voice, as in (laughs) he writes sort of quite funny opinion pieces 
pieces, quite long rants as well. Uh, but he's mostly been quiet over the last few years. In fact, he hasn't blogged since 2019. But he has just released a new blog post uh, on commenting on the Authors Guild in the US stance on AI and the various legal cases going on in the USA. His article, he calls it Fisking, and it's basically sort of a an informative but funny opinion commenting on the various aspects of articles and legal cases. And it, it is very good and it will make you laugh and also brings up a lot of what I talk about on this show. Um, but he does say uh, towards the end, the best of us will use AI to do better and more work, the same way professional photographers embrace digital photography. And he notes um, also, the fear shouldn't be machines stealing from you. The fear should be litigious humans who want to make you afraid. Then use your fear so they can acquire more. If the Authors Guild wants to really help authors, it shouldn't worry about the existential threat of machine learning that shows no actual harm, but the very real current threat of traditional publishing, which pays traditionally published authors less than self-published authors. So I think that's, uh, that's a really interesting article. Again, I'm not in the US. I'm not in the Authors Guild. Um, a lot of these court cases are in the US. The copyright law is different by country around AI. Um, So yeah, have a look at Joe's post. And uh, you can read some of his earlier articles, which really helped shape, I think, a lot of the positive um, pro-indie stance in those early years. Uh, Although (laughs) it did also sort of set up some of the more polemics (laughs) that went on. But yes, lovely to see Joe Comrath blogging again links in the show notes. So in futurist AI things, uh, last week I mentioned ChatGPT Pro was going to expand with images, uh, both sort of using images within your prompts, but also creating images. And I got access this week. So I uploaded a picture of the Paris catacombs with all the bones and things. And I said, um, can you write a description of this place and include sensory detail with a modern thriller tone? And it wrote three paragraphs based on the photo with loads of ideas that I could use for writing a scene in that location. And then I asked it for plot ideas. Now, we know it's good at plot ideas, doing plot lists um, that can often help you like, write, give me 20 ideas for plot plot ideas for this setting. So that was cool. Uh, I already did write about the Paris catacombs uh, in Crypt of Bone, but it was very cool to sort of chat with it and I can see lots of ideas there. Also, uh, you because I'm the premium on ChatGPT, I got access to Dali 3 and uh, was sort of playing with that. And you can also access it for free through bing.com forward slash create. So that's bing.com forward slash create. Uh, and it's really good fun, actually. It's a real step change in terms of the image quality. It can also put text on the images. And I shared with my patrons some of these things that I've been doing. And, uh, you know, it's it's really come on. And some of the words are wrong, but some of the words are correct. And even if you don't want to use these things as actual book covers, I mean, I, I think it's it, at the moment, you still wouldn't just do one prompt, output a book cover and publish it. That, that isn't what most of us are doing, but it will help you come up with ideas that you can maybe work with your book designer with. Um, You can use them on social media and that kind of thing. So with ChatGPT, with Dali, you can kind of iterate with words. So you can say, actually, I want more of a gothic feel or add some trees on the side of the image and all of that kind of thing. So it's very different to Midjourney and I need to play with it some more to see how it feels. But also ChatGPT Pro... (laughs) For people like me who write darker books and want things like skulls and bones on their covers, uh, it doesn't seem to like that. I think probably if you're writing happy, happy things (laughs) and you want a happy uh, book cover, that might be fine. I have found that the bing.com forward slash create is more free. And when I say free, I mean like you can do, I did lots of bones and skulls and things on Bing much more easily than ChatGPT Pro. So I think, again, all these tools are just fun to play with to see. Um, It kind of helps you turn your ideas into reality, I think. And one of the images that ChatGPT did for one of my prompts, it's not necessarily an image I'm going to use, but boy, it gave me some story ideas. (laughs) So, So yes, have fun with that. 
So in personal news, writing the shadow, the Kickstarter is still running until the 25th of October 2023. And you can find it at thecreativepen.com forward slash shadow book. That link will redirect. Thanks to everyone who's bought already in the various formats. And I also wanted to mention, uh, I talk about the book a lot, but you can also buy writing the shadow sessions as part of the campaign, which are two lots of two hour online writing sessions with me and a small group. And of course, you could It's on Zoom, but you can leave your camera off if you like. I'm running it in several time zones in the first two weekends of December. The first session is about tapping into your shadow, looking inward. And the second is about writing shadow into your books in any genre, looking outward. And we'll be... talk a bit and teach a bit and then we'll do writing sessions and writing exercises and then there'll be Q&A as well. So if you want to join me for two lots of two hour um, sessions in December, then you can get that on the Kickstarter. You can also get the recordings if you buy them uh, through the Kickstarter. I'm not selling the recordings again. These are specifically for people who join. Um, You can get it in the hardback bundle or you can add it on to the digital rewards. So for example, you could buy the ebook and the live writing sessions with me. And uh, yeah, so and if you have already purchased and you want to change your pledge, that's completely fine. You can change it right up until it closes. So you can just go back in, uh, manage your pledge, click change and add on the shadow sessions. I'm really looking forward to it. So it's really if you want some accountability over working through some of this stuff. Um, So yeah, I look forward to doing some live writing with some of you in December. The campaign and the marketing blitz continues. I'm sure many of you have heard me on other podcasts. I am everywhere. So I've been on the Rebel Author Podcast with Sasha, Sasha Black, Stark Reflections with Mark Leslie Lefebvre, How Do You Write with Rachel Heron, the Secret Library Podcast with Caroline Donoghue, as well as the self-publishing show with James Blatch, the Hybrid Author Podcast with Joanne Morell. So all of those are specifically on the shadow in writing. And some of those interviews get pretty personal for me, but also personal for the podcast's hosts. <laughs> Uh, I'm also on the self-publishing advice podcast with Orna Ross, talking about writing, publishing and marketing passion projects or books of the hearts, as I like to call them. And the novel marketing podcast, talking about tips for selling direct uh, with Thomas Umstadt Jr. And we we had a great discussion that's not specifically about Kickstarter. It's also about Shopify, but uh, very much about how to sort of change your mindset and um, also practical tips about selling direct. Also, in personal things on fiction, my novella Catacomb is in a ebook bundle, Halloween bundle, which has books from fantasy to horror, from zombies to monsters to fae and more. If you want a great deal on an ebook bundle, check it out for a limited time at storybundle.com forward slash horror. So thanks for your emails and comments and photos this week. At Gabriel's Grove Pottery said, absolutely love this interview with L.A. Witt. It's good to hear about high productivity authors and how they accomplish their feats. There's a lot of content there out there about writing slow, but not a lot about writing fast, which is how I write. Thank you for sharing. And Christina Abraham says, great interview with L.A. Witt. I listened to it twice. As a new novelist, it was encouraging to hear L.A. affirming my process. Also, trust emergence is my new motto. It applies to my entire creative life. Thanks for more great content. Yes, and trust emergence is uh, one of the things I have on my wall uh, in terms of when I get to that point of thinking, I just don't know what's going to happen. And I think many of us feel that about the state of the world uh, and also sometimes our author businesses or more specifically our books. So yes, trust emergence, things will happen. And also thanks to uh, Lucy in Telford, who sent me a photo out for a run in Prague listening to your show and also sent a picture of him with self-published book The Sequence, um, which is with Lucian in the cockpit of a plane. So it looks like you're a pilot. Uh, Fantastic. Brilliant pictures. Thanks to some other people who sent me pictures. I, I can't mention everyone every show, but please do send me pictures of where you're listening. I love that. Um, I also love comments. You can leave a comment on the podcast show notes at the 
creativepen.com or on the YouTube channel. Or you can um, X me, message me on X at the Creative Pen. Um, email me, send me pictures of where you're listening, Joanna at the Creative Pen.com. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So this episode is sponsored by Drafter Digital, and I'll play a word from Kevin in a minute. On a personal note, I use Drafter Digital for publishing wide to various ebook stores, including Nook and Apple for some books, and to get my ebooks into the library systems. And I use the payment splitting for my co-written book, The Relaxed Author with Mark Lefebvre, and they also run promotions for various services. So there's a whole load of benefits for publishing through Drafter Digital. They also have a really helpful human support team. So if you want self-publishing with some help, then uh, certainly have a look at that and email them with any questions. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons, who also especially support the in-betweenisodes on AI, other futurist topics, and we're getting much more of a community over at Patreon. Uh, now I've moved to the monthly... Um, system, I guess, and also Patreon themselves are expanding the capabilities of the system. So my plan definitely as, um, in, you know, as the month this year ends and next year, I'm going to do much more with my patrons. And in fact, this week, I did a long post on how I've been using ChatGPT Pro and also Bing Create, um, which is pretty cool. Thanks to new patrons this week, NS28, Bethany, Amy, Jasmine, Matthew, Jared, Suzanne, Anne-Marie, Linda, Margaret, Richard and Lindsay. And if you support the show on Patreon, you get my extra monthly Q&A for patrons only, which I will be doing probably this week, which is around 45 minutes of audio where I answer your questions about writing, publishing, book marketing, making money and everything you also get access to the videos that I've been posting about Midjourney, Claude 100K and uh, Shopify. So yes, thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show for years and months. You're all amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, also, we're having a meetup at 20 Books Vegas. So if you are going to 20 Books, then um, join the Patreon and you can come along to our little private meetup. You can support the show for just a few dollars or euros or pounds or many currencies, less than a coffee a month or a couple of coffees if you're feeling generous. You can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, here's a word from draft to digital and then we'll get on with the interview. Hi, this is Kevin Tomlinson with draft to digital bringing you DDD smart author tip number 13. You. Everywhere. That's one of our goals here at D2D. We're aiming to build tools that help you and your books be everywhere that your readers might be looking. And to do that, we've built a whole bunch of tools that you can use for free. Author pages, book tabs, reading lists, universal book links, those are just some of the ways we've got you covered in the world. And of course, we also distribute your books to hundreds of retailers, subscription services, and libraries all over the world. Helping you reach more readers is what we're here for. And we keep improving on that every day. draft to digital We are self-publishing with support. Find more at d2d.tips slash creative pen. That's pen with two N's because we're big on the numeral two around here. Linda Lappin is the award-winning author of Historical Fiction and Mystery, as well as the Soul of Place Creative Writing Workbook, Ideas and Exercises for Conjuring the Genius Loci, which we're talking about today. So welcome to the show, Linda. Thank you. Oh, I'm excited to talk to you about this topic. But first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing and publishing. Uh, I'm an American author based in Italy, and I've always written ever since I was a small child. I did a, a creative writing minor with an English major at university, and then I went on to the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop to do a graduate degree in MFA in fiction, poetry, and also literary translation. And thanks to the literary translation, I was able to get a Fulbright grant to Italy to participate in a translation workshop. And I managed to stay on here. And it was sort of an interesting thing because when I was at university, I was writing primarily poetry. 
But after I moved abroad to Italy, I, I kind of gave up writing for five years because I was really focusing on learning the language and on translating. And when I started writing again, it was prose and short stories, which then got longer and longer and became novels. I've also been teaching. I taught 39 years in Italian universities as a teacher of English language and literature. So you said they're 39 years. So how long have you been in Italy? 40. Oh, wow. <laughs> 40 years. That's crazy. Do you consider yourself now Italian? Because you must have lived in Italy longer than the US. Yes. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I have lived here longer than I lived in the US because I was only about 25 when I left. But your roots sort of stay with you, which is also part of the solar place. They do stay with you. So mm. I'm, I'm perfectly bilingual. My husband is Italian. We speak on a combination of English and Italian. But I still feel very American. That is interesting. I, and I'm just fascinated with place. And I know people listening are too. So where in the US do you come from? And where are you living in Italy? Uh, well, I originally come from Kingsport, Tennessee. My parents were from the Chicago area. And I was living in Iowa City before I moved to Italy. And now I'm in Rome. Actually, I'm based in a, I have a, a second home in a small village near Rome. And so we go back and forth, especially during the pandemic. We've been in this, our second home a lot. So back and forth, Rome and a small village called Vitorchiano. Wow. Okay. So this actually gives me much more of an insight into why you wrote this book in the first place, because these the, like Tennessee, Rome, Chicago, Iowa, I'm sure people in their mind, I mean, even as a, a Brit, I haven't been, oh, I've been to Chicago. I've, I've been to Rome many times, but the, these places all have very specific sense of place, which is kind of what we're talking about. So why did we get into the book and you pronounce this differently, but what do you mean by genius loci or soul of place? Well, most people think of soul of place as being a synonym for sense of place, meaning the atmosphere of a place or a locale. But the term genius uh, loci, or as I pronounce it with the Italian genius loci, refers to something much more specific and harkens back to ancient Rome. Because the ancient Romans, as well as Greeks and also various other populations around the world in different eras, have always believed that everything that is created, a person, place, thing, even a concept, has an indwelling spark of energy called the genius, which gives it its character and animates it. So when you talk about sort of place, in that context, we're talking about a, a special uh, characterizing energy that dwells in a place. And, well, then can you give us some, I guess, more specifics around where you live now, Rome, which to me has this like, I mean, you talk about the ancient Romans, Rome has a mythic quality, but the reality of living there is quite different. So how would you describe it around where you live? Well, I live in a kind of a proletarian area. So it's a modern neighborhood on the outside of outside the city center, but still within the what's called the ring road of Rome. So it's very chaotic full of people and traffic and cars, but they all manifest that real Roman way of life, the Roman slang, the way people, uh, the daily habits of gathering in the streets and having your coffee and meeting for, a, for an aperitivo. I mean, all that I see in my very, very working class neighborhood every day. Does everywhere have this soul of place? I guess, how do people know when they feel something in a place? Well, there was the French anthropologist who recently passed away, Marc Auger, who wrote that book called No Places. Do you know that book? I don't, but it sounds interesting. Well, he sort of analyzes all these places in our modern society which have no soul, which are like airports and shopping malls and highways and so on, which are just anonymous spaces. So the solar place is something that's quite the opposite of that. So it's where you feel something that's been something that's deposited in the territory itself, which can be through other people who've lived there for generations or important events that have taken place there or particular architectural style that developed there because of the climatic conditions or because of the materials that were available. The solar place is really a, a, a composite of factors which arise from the actual physical nature of the place itself its climatic conditions, its orientation towards north or south or a certain 
even cosmic influences, if you like. This is something that D.H. Lawrence believed. So in order to feel the soul of place, you really just have to rely on your instinct. Because we know that in earlier times, of course, we were nomadic creatures and we wandered the earth looking for sources of food and sources of water. And we had an instinct for where to go and where we would thrive and where we wouldn't. And so I think all of us still have that latent in ourselves. So one aspect of getting to know the soul of place is just to rely on your instinct to your, to the place itself. But, but then, of course, there are other factors as well, like when you're in a place that's extraordinarily beautiful and it awakens your sense of the sublime, maybe you feel lifted out of yourself, lifted out of your daily cares, or maybe you just find a place that seems familiar to you, even though you've never been there before. And it just seems to, you feel comfortable there and you can imagine staying there for the rest of your life. These are all ways that you can feel the soul of place. I find this very interesting. I'm I'm very sensitive to places and so I write about it a, a lot in my books. But I know some people don't find it so important. So why do you think it's important for writers to capture this soul of place in their books? And and then I guess how can these places be used differently by genre so Rome for example could be often is in a romance (laughs) but it might also be in a like a historical thriller or a modern crime novel for example for sure yeah I can think of many examples well all as uh, Lawrence Durrell says all great works of fiction are as much concerned with place as they are with character and incident and I think that's really true. And then he goes on to make a point. If you take Moby Dick and you put it in another setting, it's a completely different book. And on another level, the idea that our environment, in literature anyway, the outer environment is somehow a manifestation or reflection of the inner one of the characters is a trope that's existed in literature since the times of myth. So also we find it in Dante, we find it in Shakespeare, we find it in the Bronte sisters. We find it in romantic poetry, and also a lot of contemporary modern writers have used this idea as well, that the outside is somehow, the environment is somehow a reflection of what's inside. And a great example, of course, is the hotel in The Shining. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a real place in the real world, but it's also like a projection of the protagonist, Jack's uh, crumbling, disintegrating mind. And the, the things are kind of, it's it's mirrored back and forth from real place to projection until he has the final meltdown. So place is another way of expressing character. And even, even Henry James, who was a very psychologically realistic writer, we can say, believed that people are, are an expression of their landscape. So mm. as far as using setting in different ways, different different genres... Well, if you look at the idea, at the element of plot, say, plot is really, can be really basic, and there are different critics who have analyzed plot variations and plot possibilities and, and have come up with a series of sequences and numbers and letters which represent all the different variations that you can have in any plot, which is, turns out to be a finite number, much more finite than you would have expected. But the thing that makes uh, allows fiction to multiply all of those possibilities is the setting. And this is really evident if you look at romance novels because the plot of a romance novel is usually really formulaic because you have the, the female protagonist usually who meets a wonderful man or a terrible man, depends, uh, <laughs> falls in love and then there's obstacle, 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 obstacle and then either reunion or if it's more perverse, death. I mean, there's, that's it. But if you take this basic formula and you put it in a different setting, you come up with a completely different book because a cruise ship or Italy in the, in the 1700s or uh, same plot in the Arctic or in Tibet or whatever, you've got a completely different story. And another interesting element about the use of setting in romance novels is that often the lover is somehow a manifestation of the setting himself. I mean, he's something exotic. He's somehow, he's different from the protagonist. He represents that exciting otherness that that is also embodied in the setting itself. So those are ways that the soul of place can come out in a romance novel through the setting. It is really interesting because I do feel it's 
kind of easier maybe to feel something in a more famous setting. Again, being in Rome, it's like it just conjures up all of these images. And so it's like, yes, I feel the ancient history here. But you mentioned airports earlier, which I think is interesting. And I mean, most people, like you said, live in a suburban area. How can people find this soul of place closer to home, maybe in their local neighbourhood or or kind of practice tapping into it even more locally than having to fly somewhere exotic? Well, I think that in, in our own neighbourhoods, we don't realise how much they are changing every day because we rush from one street to another. We're running to get the bus or the metro or the underground or whatever. And maybe we notice the main fixtures that seem to be the same ones, unchanging. But a lot of things in our neighborhoods and on the streets themselves are changing constantly. So if we slow down and we start to take note, we can discover a lot of interesting things about the places where we live. And there's a technique, actually, that I suggest in the book, which is to make a deep map. And the deep map is, is something that's really, it goes along with also being a flaneur when you're just an aimless wanderer in your in your town. But in this case, you're going to take notes. So a deep map is basically a personalized map of your experience of a specific location, which could be your neighborhood, a street, a city, a rural area, or it could be an itinerary of a trip. You start out by marking out the territory you mean to explore, which could be your neighborhood, your the street that you live on, whatever. And then with that, In hand, you go out on different explorations at different times of day and just note everything that you come across, whether it's other people, sound, smells, glimpses of things, events, animals, weather, your feelings, your remembrances about that place from the past, past collective events. And you gather all this information and you put it on the map. And this will give you a completely new way of looking at the place where you live. You'll discover all kinds of interesting things about it in this way. And that's actually a really good tool that a writer can use, whether you're writing a memoir and you're revisiting in the past, maybe the the street where you lived as a child. And this will help bring out all kinds of things that you have forgotten. Or you can actually do it, you know, in live walking around with your phone or your notes or whatever. And use this also for articles, travel writing, and of course in world building for your characters in a work of fiction. It could be a very useful tool. Yeah, I love that. And it's so interesting because during the pandemic, I mean, I I usually travel a lot. And during the pandemic, I found myself, as we all did, walking the same routes over and over again. And of course, over the, what, I guess almost two years was the most of the 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 main bit of the pandemic, uh, we all got to know our areas a lot more. So I almost feel like people have been forced into doing that locally and may have noticed more. Like I definitely noticed more about my local area because I walked the same routes over and over again, which I hadn't really done before. So it's, it's definitely worth doing. Yes, well, it's interesting that you mentioned the pandemic because, well, that was my experience too. But, and there would be maybe you'd notice a sign up saying this building had been disinfected or you saw these guys in in hazmat suits getting out of an ambulance and going somewhere. I mean, that was part of my experience of the pandemic is all these little outings that you saw all of these very eerie examples of, of what was going on. Yeah, that was, I, as you were talking now, I remember when we had to go to the supermarket and it was only open at certain times. And then there were the stickers on the ground, which kept everyone a certain number of meters apart. Oh, yeah. And I remember saying to my husband, because a friend of mine was trapped in Peru, couldn't get yeah. back to the UK. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I wish Sarah could see this. This is so weird. And just that moment of, look, this is the supermarket, like where we go all the time. And then this this thing changed the area. So I guess that would be a tip, right, is to to watch out for things that are out of the usual and notice them more. And even if they're normal type things, um, but to notice things more, even if they're local. Oh, for sure. One thing I also noticed was the incredible silence of the streets. Mm. Our street was, which, which is usually in Rome, is you know there's traffic, and noisy, truck <laughs> and the bus and people shouting and yelling and all that. There was nothing. It was absolutely silent. 
Wow. That, yeah, it must have been amazing. But um, in the book as well, you talk about reading a setting. So I wonder if you could talk about that and, and how we can bring depth to our books. Oh, okay. Um, another interesting thing that Durrell says in one of his books is to look at a landscape and to hear the landscape say, because he sort of enters into kind of like this subconscious dialogue with the soul of the place. And the, he, the landscape says to him, I am watching you. Are you watching me? Are you watching yourself in me? Which I think is, it's, uh, it's like a haiku. It's so beautiful. It's so profound. So to read a setting, it really, you have to sort of step back from it as if you were an artist who's going to maybe paint it or a sculptor who's going to turn it into a, a, some kind of a work of art. And just to try and, and if it's a street or a square or, or a house or whatever, just to see its main outlines in a way that you don't normally, because normally we see the bits and pieces of things. And unless we've been trained to look at something as a whole, we don't. So to step back and to see how the the space is delimited and circumscribed and are there mountains, are there other houses, are there trees? What sort of makes the frame of this particular area that we're looking at? How are the different buildings, how are they, do they relate to each other harmoniously or not? What is the quality of the light at different times of day? What is the quality of the air? Does it channel the wind in a particular direction? And just to, are there are there things that you notice in the landscape or in the architecture which are open the door to stories like a road that leads somewhere interesting or an interesting door that opens and who knows what's behind it. So first to look at the general picture of it and then all of the details and those that attract your attention the most. And then patterns. Are there patterns of movement that are made by leaves, people, cars, birds, water, reflections of water, shadows, as if you were a painter wanting to paint this in sort of like over a span of, of in a time lapse. And then you put yourself in the picture and then you feel how this particular environment would affect you personally if it's where you live, how it affects you personally, how it affects the people who live there, who've lived there before you also, if it's a a historical place, how would they have felt the sun and the air and the and just the general atmosphere of the place? So that's mm. what I call reading the signs of a place. And when one is doing that, and if we're writing about it, whatever the genre, it might be nonfiction, it might be memoir or, or, or fiction or, or whatever, the use of sensory detail is so important. And we, we often talk about this on this show and uh, as writers, which is it's not uh, a tree you can't say a tree that's not specific enough so specific exactly. sensory detail brings a place alive but give us some examples of of how that might happen for example i know i'm good on what i see but i'm terrible on what i smell <laughs> and oh. when i think of rome i do think quite smelly <laughs> so yeah. maybe tell us a bit about the importance of sensory detail well, some of the writers that I really, really love for their sensory detail are, well, Lawrence Durrell, for example, in the Alexandria Quartet, which is just superb. Shirley Hazard in her descriptions of Naples, in The Bay of Noon, and in her memoir, uh, Distant Shore. Pico Aia, the, the travel writer, just writes fabulous sense descriptions. Also, Daphne du Maurier, those are a bit gothic. But what these writers have in common is is that they are able to to pick up on all of the senses in a particular place, and not just the visual sense, but as you say, also the perfume, the scent, the taste of the air, the feel of something on your skin, and and so on. Another an interesting detail, for example, for Shirley Hazard, which I think is interesting, is. Um, in this, in the Bay of Noon, it, it's a story of a friendship between two women, a, a British woman and, a, and an Italian woman who's also a painter. And the British woman is a friend of mutual friends, and so she goes to visit her, this, the Italian painter whose name I can't remember, and carrying a letter of introduction. And there's a wonderful description as she walks through this street in the center of Naples where there's a market and all the things that are being sold at the market and all of the, the, liveliness of this very proletarian market that's going on and into the into this house which is or 
palazzo, which is a bit decrepit because it's after the, it's post-war, so things are looking a bit dingy and run down. And she goes up the steps, and before she rings the bell, she notices the welcome mat, the doormat that's outside the door to the apartment, and it's got these dusty footprints imprinted on it. And it's one of the few details that she gives of the building, but it's so interesting because it gives us a sense of things being a bit run down, but it also gives us a sense that there's a lot of people going in and out of that apartment, and she's going to be one of those people. So it it kind of introduces all of this fervent activity that's going to be taking place as their relationship becomes intense and she becomes involved with the friends of this woman. So I think that that was a really interesting detail as to how even a small detail in a setting can then turn out to be somehow uh, to symbolically express other aspects of the story as it develops. And yes, choosing the specific detail is so important because I feel like sometimes people go too far and everything is described ad infinitum, but we don't need that. We don't need every single thing about the setting and about the place. We need those things that bring that bring our story to life specifically. I guess we have to edit out the rest, even if it's interesting, if it doesn't serve what we want to share with the reader, then it, it doesn't need to be there. Yes, exactly. Um that's one that's one minor fault of people writing historical fiction for the first time. They want to put in every single detail of everything they've turned up in their research, and it goes on and on and on. And, and, and no, you need it, it must serve the story. It must help bring the story forward or express something about the characters or foreshadow a development. Otherwise, it, it's superfluous and it, it detracts from the story itself. Mm, absolutely. So I love in the book that you have a chapter on place names. Uh, again, I guess because you're bilingual as well, place names must be really interesting when you speak different languages too. And um, I was interested sort of on finding interesting names if we're writing in the real world, but also how can we make up place names that have a depth to them that maybe give a sense of what we want to talk about in terms of that soul of place? Well, you know, place names are the poetry of place. They're messages from the past in which maybe information about the history of the place or the people who live there are deposited somehow in the name. In England, you even have names for houses, which I think is fascinating, like Howard's End or whatever. Homes, houses, buildings have names. I think that's that's a, it's a terrible problem when you have to make out a an Amazon address for the desti- for the for the person who's going to be receiving your package because you have to include the name of the house, but that's that's really very fascinating to me. Anyway, like small towns in the U.S. sometimes have some very odd names, and I was I looked up some uh, for for our conversation. Like there's Last Chance Iowa, Y Arizona, Uncertain Texas, of course Tombstone Arizona, everybody knows. Then in Canada we have a This That and the Other Street. <laughs> there are three roads, this, that, and the other. And then we have a chicken dinner road in Idaho and then Error Place in Illinois. So, I mean, if you use these names, names like this, nobody would, in a work of fiction, nobody would believe you. They would feel that they were too contrived. So I was trying to think, well, what could be a strategy? Well, I think maybe for creating a name, well, well maybe you could decide what it is that you want to emphasize, whether it's an atmosphere or something about the history or the people who live there or native origins. You, and then with this, you could add an unusual adjective or a noun functioning as an adjective or a surname, a local surname. Maybe you might have something like Moonlight Falls or Possum Bluff or Slaughter Beach. These are things that I made up here. Hangman's Alley, depending on, on what you want to emphasize. But Yes, I I think that would be a way of pairing ideas to create a place name. I often use words in different languages. So, I mean, we talked about genius loci in in a sort of Latin sense, and and you're using the modern Italian. But I will often use sort of ancient Greek or or Latin. I I won't necessarily know it. You can just look it up. I'll be like, what is the Arabic word for shadows? Uh, And then incorporate that some way. And even if the reader never realises it, in my mind that helps me write about a place. I also use that for character names and that kind of thing because almost every word, so my surname is Penn, P-E-N-N, and that's ancient, an ancient English word for hill. And 
I mean, totally not obvious at all and not really relevant. But the point is, if you actually go looking for the meaning of modern names, then you can find some really interesting stuff there. And and also like the history of a place, you know, a mining town or some somewhere where a, a particular thing was mined might have a different name. So I really love looking at those sort of older words, like older English words or older language words that underpin place. Yes, indeed. Well, in England, they have a great sense of that. I mean, all their interest in 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 rural history and ley lines and all that, that that's all connected with those old place names. Yeah, so lots lots to find there. Yeah. So I'm also really interested, personally, I'm very interested in sacred places. And in, in terms of having walked a lot of places in my, I've put in my memoir, Pilgrimage, and often sacred places in terms of uh, natural places, which are quite different to the sort of obvious holy places. So I wondered uh, if you can talk a bit about the sacred places, because you write about those in the book. Well, the thing about sacred places that are specific to a religion, um, part of the power that they have is that they have accumulated all of the aspirations and wishes and efforts of the people who've gone to, to see them. I mean, they are kind of like generators of a collective energy, if you think about that. So the fact of belonging, when you go to visit a, a sacred site on a pilgrimage or just go in not even calling it a pilgrimage, I'm just going to visit it, you are bombarded by this influence of all of the other people who have been there and who have gone there to worship or to be alone with themselves or in search of something sacred or spiritual. So there's a collective element in it, and there's also a kind of a a vertical sense of time because many, many people before you have been there. When you go to a sacred place out in nature, which is more typical of, say, the... Native American populations or Australian, it's the landscape itself that that emanates this incredible power. And so maybe you feel you are with the, you know, you are just with the cosmic forces, you are with God or just with yourself alone. But it's a much more kind of solitary experience. So there are these two differences in, in the kind of sacred, they're both sacred experiences, but they have a, a very different feeling towards the, as far as you as being an individual or as you as being part of a chain of humanity. Uh, so I think in your, in the questions you asked, how can we find a sacred place or a place of pilgrimage that's meaningful to us? And I, what I thought about that was, well, it, it's kind of instinctive that when you find a place that, that gives you a sense of peace or recharges you or, in which you find that you are slowing down and noticing the environment more or paying more attention to your feelings or just somehow lifted out of your normal routine and uh, looking into a greater depth inside you. And I think a lot of even small places that we encounter during the day could possibly give us this experience if we just learn how to open our eyes and experience them directly. Yeah, I mean, this is a bit of a metaphysical question, but you did talk there about these holy places where people's emotions and I guess their faith may have kind of been imprinted. That's how I think about it. I've been to some places where I feel like I I really am in in the presence of millions of people (laughs) who have imprinted this place with their faith. And that, to me, becomes part of the sense of place. And I mean, is that a metaphysical question? Or do you think there is something that happens there? Oh, I definitely think that there is something that happens there. I think that's something that happens also in other spaces that we just love. There was a violent pageant, Violet Paget, who was a very interesting writer, had this theory that when you go to visit a place, you leave a part of yourself there. And when you go back, you pick it up again. So, and that's very, in, but sort of really fits with the soul, of, with the, the Roman idea of the soul of place, is that there's this energy that you can connect to. And then when you go back, it's, it's like a stream. You attach yourself to it again. But she really thought of it as sort of pieces of herself that were left in a house or on a bridge and you go back and you connect to them. That's sort of how I experience it. And when there are places when you do feel that there's an accumulation of something, whether it's yours or other people's, I think um, I think that's a very real experience. 
Yes, and in my fiction, I write a lot about these types of places in my fiction and in my memoir. But you have this really interesting section about uh, home. And I was thinking about characters' homes, which I never, ever do. Like I had, or now I'm thinking now, I had like one scene in one book once about a character's home, which is quite telling that I would much prefer to set scenes in big cathedrals or out in nature than in a home. So could you talk about that? What are your tips for writing about characters' homes if people want to write more, I guess, personal stories? Well, everything that we keep in our house and the way we arrange it and the way we take care of it, it's really a manifestation of our personality. So in a way, when you're writing about the home, you're writing about the person. An interesting thought came to mind when I read your question, which was about the um, the British food writer, uh, Patience Gray. Do you know Patience Gray? No. No. Well, she was a very popular writer in the 50s, very, very posh. But she married a sculptor who took her off to live in these really, really rough places in Italy and Spain and Greece uh, near the quarries where they lived in really rough homes, uh, very rudimentary cooking facilities like on an open, open hearth or a charcoal stove or, I mean, really quite the opposite of London when she was writing this these cookbooks and these columns for the newspapers, which were followed by very chic readers who wanted to learn how to cook French and so on. And she describes her kitchen but in one of these settings. But the thing that she describes is a pan that she bought in London, which had actually been made in France, which was an oval-shaped pan for frying sole. And she took this pan with her all over to these hovels, basically, where they were living without any electricity and maybe no glass in the windows, and it was like half camping, and maybe she went from one place to the other on a donkey. And she also had a typewriter with her. But So this pan is really like an... This, it was sort of very unique. Think of this very rudimentary kitchen in this very chic French frying pan that she carried all over the place. But it's really like a talisman of her personality. It's... Uh, a symbol of her uh, identity as a as a chef, um, as a food writer, as a person, of, as a lover of great food, um, and I really think that that all of us have something like that in our homes that really represents us somehow, or maybe it's just a maybe a smaller object, but something that maybe is even not in in keeping with the overall atmosphere of the place, but which somehow really manifest something important about ourselves. And I think if you look at your characters and you look at their homes, you could probably see, well, maybe there's something, maybe there's a chair or there's a, a box or there's a, there's something that really epitomizes, in a way, their identity. And, and that would be a detail to, to start working with, I think, in describing a home. That is interesting. I was just looking on my wall right in front of me. I've got a world map. <laughs> and that's what I have to look at every day. I don't even think I've said that on the show before. I just like having a world map on the wall. I always did when I was growing up. And I was also thinking that the first thing I do when I go into someone's home is have a look at their bookshelves. And if they don't have any books, then I just can't trust them. Oh, yes, for sure. Unfortunately, (laughs) I have to get rid of a lot of them because I have too many and I keep having to to get rid of them and give them away and so on because my house will fall down if I keep them all, unfortunately. Yeah. But then we can buy more. Uh, like I like I was telling you, I bought your book and I will have to get rid of something else to put your book in my shelf. So. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll be reading your book on pilgrimage as well. I think that will be really interesting. Oh, thank you. Right. So we're almost out of time, but I do have a question going back to your dual citizenship as such, because one of the things that kind of obsesses me is about writing as the other and writing as an outsider, because part of me feels like we do have a much keener sense of what is unusual when we're an outsider. So I can come to Rome and I can see things that Romans can't see. But in another way, obviously, it's a completely different gaze than someone who lives in a place and that there are problems with authenticity, there are problems with stereotypes, problems with a lot of different stuff from either side. But as someone who is essentially a a dual citizen of, of Italy and the USA, what are your thoughts on writing as an outsider? 
Well, that's a really tough question because I think your gaze is something that's so much a part of you and your experiences and especially your formation as a young person, so your childhood and your family. I mean, it's really hard to change that. So you'll, you take that with you wherever you go, but you can educate it, you can make it more informed and more culturally aware and so on become be aware of your prejudices which is hard to do and be aware of your shortcomings but i agree yes when you're not of the place you can see a lot of things that other that that they don't notice because they're just so used to it but on the other hand though to really know a place you need to know the language you need to understand the people you need to understand where they come from because the more you, you live in a place, the more you realize that that we really do carry, a, a society really carries a baggage along of what it was before, of attitudes and beliefs and religion and so on, even if maybe they're not all active anymore, but they're still there. They're, those influences are still there. So if you're going to be writing about a place as a traveler, then it's quite different than if you're writing from inside as somebody who really knows it well. So after 40 years, are you accepted as an Italian or do you feel that you do? Are are you still an outsider? Are you still an other? Yeah, probably. Because of my (laughs) accent, I don't have a perfect Italian accent. So, I mean, I speak Italian well, but they can tell that I'm not a native speaker from my accent. So that automatically clues into maybe they understand that I'm American, but they realize that I am foreign. And I just look different. I don't look Italian. It's also how you present yourself, how you walk, mm. how you dress. You know, in Italy, we all, as far as women go, we all wear black and blue, navy and black most of the time, and which is very different from, say, women in the south of France or, in fact, this British friend of mine came, oh, this black and brown. <laughs> so depressing. <laughs> you know, um, So it's not just your physiognomy, it's also how you walk, your manner, when you speak to someone, how close you stand to them or how far away you stand, whether you look directly or you look aside. I mean, there's a lot of different signals that that are picked up between people when you interact. And if you're not of the same group or the same culture, I think that shows not just Mm. through language or appearance, but through other things as well. Yeah, it's actually quite funny. I lived in Australia and also New Zealand for, I was away 11 years. And I remember really struggling in Australia because British people, we, we speak in subtext. Like we don't often say what we, what we think, what we, we say something, but what we mean is something else. But people who are British understand <laughs> what we're talking about or not talking about. But in Australia, people are much more direct. So I, I would have a conversation and I'd assume that they, understood me and then they didn't because I hadn't said it in a really direct way so it's even stuff like that which is a sort of cultural background I mean in the US people are very direct but I guess Italians are pretty direct too well not always not always there's they're they're more Arab and then than Anglo-Saxon in that way people will give you a compliment and they mean the opposite yes or ah, so very British <laughs> that's quite funny so it's been really interesting talking about the soul of place but you have other books as well so tell us a bit about all the other things you have well I've published four novels and all of my novels originate from a a memorable encounter that I had with a place my first novel The Etruscan is about a woman a photographer who comes to Italy in 1920 and discovers the Etruscan ruins and has a very life-changing relationship with a local man And that sort of was born from my exploration of the Etruscan area near my second home, this village where I am. And then my second novel is based on the life of Catherine Mansfield after a visit to the Priore of uh, Fontainebleau, where she died at Gurdjieff's Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man. And my third novel, Signatures in Stone, is based in the Beaumarzo Monster Park. And it's a mystery, and it's the one that I won an award from the Daphne du Maurier Award for Suspense Writing in the U.S. And it's based on these incredible Baroque sculptures of monsters and a crime happens in this garden. And this book is actually going to be released in the second edition this winter because this year was the 500th anniversary of the park. And my latest novel is Loving Modigliani. It's about the life of Jeanne Hebouterne, 
who uh, was the companion of Modigliani, the Amadeo Modigliani, the Italian painter, who died in Paris in 1920. And this book got its start when I looked in the window of the building where his studio once was located, and there was a trick of light on the stairs, on these dusty stairs, and it looked like a ghost was descending the staircase. And that was the beginning of of what was going to of what became my novel because it's narrated by the ghost of his uh, common law wife. Brilliant. So, where can people find you and your books online? Well, I have a website which is lindalappet.net, but also .com will take you to the same place. Linda Lappen with no punctuation, lindalappen.net or .com. And my books are distributed by Ingram, but they're also all on Amazon, also as ebooks. So you can find them on any ebook platform as well. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Linda. That was great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. So I hope you found the interview with Linda interesting and that it's given you some ideas for your own settings and writing ideas. So next week, I'm talking to Patricia McLean on how to stop trying to do everything. And if you have a more mature author business and a huge backlist and you've got all these tools and services to maintain, how do you know what to keep on top of and when should you just let it go? And in fact, Pat and I have a good chat about the challenges of backlist maintenance and uh, I definitely challenge her on letting some things go. And she has some really good tips. So it's a great conversation. And also remember to check out Writing the Shadow, Turn Your Inner Darkness into Words at thecreativepen.com forward slash shadow book. And if you're listening after 25th of October 2023, that link will redirect. So in the meantime, happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.